Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. The world works in certain ways until a new great idea comes along and changes everything. We need a name. We. We live. We dream. We work. I'm Travis Kalanick, and I will never back down from a fight. And if no one wants to believe in me, I'll make them believe by being undeniable. These kids don't overthink. They don't get bogged down about the way things have always been done. They want to change things now. Hello and welcome back to Still Watching Downfall of the Startups. I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson. I'm here today with Vanity Fair Hollywood Editor Hillary Busis. Hello, Hillary. Hello, Richard. Uh, So today we'll be covering three episodes. The finale of The Dropout, Episode 8, Lizzie. We crashed Episode 6 called Fortitude and Super Pumped Episode 6 called Delete Uber. Later on in the episode, we'll hear my interview with the Dropout star Amanda Seyfried, who has lots of interesting things to say about playing Elizabeth Holmes and her hopes potentially for a second season. So, Hillary, I figured we'd start with the Dropout because, as I said, this was the season series finale. We're not quite sure. Um, So I'm curious, did it end satisfactorily for you? You know, it did and it didn't. Um, There are a lot of threads to wrap up. Um, and I think that the show does a great job of concluding the Theranos saga, but I'm not really sure. It, it does kind of introduce uh, kind of what happened after Theranos got shut down by the government, essentially. Um, but it happens pretty quickly. Um, we see Elizabeth in her new relationship. We see her kind of embracing this new, uh, honestly, sort of Rebecca Newman, Adam Newman-esque persona. Um Somebody who goes to Burning Man and calls herself Lizzie. Uh, but it, it happens so quickly. And then, you know, we get the typical end of a docudrama, like title cards that tell us what happened to everybody and where they ended up. Um, 
But yeah, it, it does. It's funny. I wouldn't have thought that this could be more than a limited series. But the fact that you said season, maybe series finale uh, makes me think, I don't know, there is more here. The entire trial, it doesn't get covered because it couldn't because I think it was it started after this show was already in production. So it couldn't really be incorporated. Um, but yeah, so I, I was actually left wanting more. I don't know. How about you? Yeah, I, I think that the more I've sat with it, I watched the episode twice now, um, I think it's a really well-built episode of television. And I think this final primal scream moment with Elizabeth outside of these now shuttered offices um, is is effective. And then her sort of quick snap back into getting in an Uber, I believe, to go to court, <laughs> uh, if I'm not mistaken. But um or at least she's, you know, in some senses on her way to the trial. I think that works. But, you know, we don't have the trial. We don't, which maybe we don't need a courtroom drama about this, but we don't have the sentencing. We still don't know what what's going to happen to her. Right. Yeah. The um, rest is still unwritten. <laughs> exactly. We need to get the Hills people on this season two. Uh, they could, you know, just to help Meriwether shape a proper ending as the Hills had. And I don't know. I think that also the fact that we meet this new guy, Billy, I believe his name is the boyfriend but he's in this sort of ethereal under the bed sheets. Like we don't really meet him, meet him. Um, and we know in real life that they had a child together. So I kind of would be curious to see that continuation provided that it was written and filmed once more of this was settled. Like Elizabeth got her, gets her sentencing. Sonny's trial concludes um, because I think that might put the right button on both the Theranos narrative and the personal narrative, which has been so well calibrated this season. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. Um, John Kerry Rue's uh, podcast about the trial was called Bad Blood, colon, the final chapter. But Sonny's trial still hasn't happened. I mean, it, it seems like there is going to be, you know, potentially years more of uh, of Theranos fallout uh, that could be covered in various media forms. Especially because this episode in particular sets up this tension or more between Sonny and Elizabeth so potently, you know, right. um, the ep- we, last week we saw the kind of curdling where Elizabeth is making some threats about, well, you know, I'm the CEO. I don't read all my emails implicating that Sonny would be the fall guy. And then we really see that play out in this episode. Yeah. They're uh, you- they're two hander scene where they kind of slowly turn on each other and sort of reveal what their arguments are going to be in court. I thought was just really great. Yeah, it it's so bruising because you know this relationship has been so odd throughout the course of the show, and this is something I, t- I spoke about with Amanda. Like, and yet there has been a certain sweetness, if only because it's the only time when she's alone with Sunny that we really see Elizabeth drop some of the veneer, and to see even that private space, uh, sort of destroyed by this. Um, you know, I don't really feel bad for either of them, but there is a sense of loss. Or am I being too soft? No, I think, well, there might be a sense of loss coming from one of them. I, I think that by the end, it seems like Sunny is the one who is more invested in the relationship and she has kind of transcended it and, you know, turned into turned into a much more Machiavellian figure. But I don't know. Maybe that's not fair either. Maybe, maybe it's tough to say. Do you agree with his assessment of, you know, you're a ghost, there's nothing there, I was just imagining you this whole time? Like, do you think that this show has painted Elizabeth Holmes as that vacant of a person? I think it, I think that the coda with her new relationship and her kind of adopting an entirely different persona, somebody who has a dog, somebody who goes to Burning Man, 
somebody who speaks in a different vocal register. Um, I think the show is kind of making that argument that Elizabeth Holmes was a construct and Lizzie is a construct and who this person, who she actually is. I don't know if that's a question that can be answered. Yeah, and maybe not by a second season either. You know, I, I think maybe the only person who can answer that is Elizabeth, but only to herself, you know, because I think there's enough about her that we know um, both through the show and everything else about her that it's like, I don't think we're ever going to get the straight story there. Um, and we see in this episode, you know, not Sonny's not the only one who um, who has this kind of snap of like the, the illusion kind of breaks. Uh, we also see it to some extent with George Schultz. Um, it's more that's more to do, I guess, with his son, uh, or her grandson rather, Tyler, who you know kind of fesses up like I have, I am the source. I am going to go on the record, um, and maybe that storyline is more about repairing that relationship to some extent. But I also think it's about George standing in for perhaps other investors, other boosters of this company, who all of a sudden, way too late, were like, "Oh, I've been kind of." It, you know, following behind a ghost or some sort of other entity that is not what they said they were. Yeah. And the really bruising part of that is he he sees he's been had, but he's still too proud to say he's sorry, just kind of like straightforwardly and openly to Tyler. Um, and I don't know that that felt like a more emotional gut punch, I think, than the Elizabeth and Sunny stuff, just because it is true, according to the title cards, that he never actually formally like in as many words said i'm sorry to tyler for calling him a liar and and not supporting him um before he died in 2021 and like that's that's pretty that's pretty devastating yeah this kind of scramble to both admit some mistake but also preserve some pride you know i i I think that it's so interesting on this show and these other two shows how one of the engines that sustains these scams or these bad people is a certain degree of pride from from the people who invested in them financially emotionally both whatever yeah that's the short answer for how they can go on for so long because even after people have an inkling that something is wrong they can't admit that they've been duped because then they would feel stupid they would feel stupid and also it would dent their reputation as masters of the universe as people who are sort of prophetic about the next big thing and you know we saw this play out so beautifully in the Walgreens episode where these dopey guys who aren't I mean we call them dopey but they're the heads of a huge corporation oh like, yeah they clearly they have to have... be very business savvy to have gotten as far as they did yeah and they like, have it's a not great all Katy Perry <laughs> <laughs> right um and yet they're all kind of made fools or worse by this you know steadfast conviction that they're going to be the, the the prospectors who make their way out west and find the gold and don't just end up rattling pans around a mountain. Yeah, <laughs> you know? and and it's like the the sense of FOMO that like if they don't get in on the ground floor, then they will be kicking themselves down the line when they see all the money that other people made. Like it's it's just a fear based uh, action that they're taking. Yeah, and and I think the FOMO is so funny because like I kind of have it a little bit watching these shows. Not for I don't want to be close to any of these people. I don't want to know any of these people. But like that money looks fun and traveling <laughs> all over the world looks great. And, I mean, it I mean, certainly I don't looks lo- like, yeah, if if we had worked at tech startups when we were like 23, I bet we would have had an amazing time. Yeah, if only I'd invested half my paycheck in Gawker shares. I'd be, <laughs> oh, wait, no, I'd be broke. <laughs> um, you would actually yeah. be owned by uh, Hulk Hogan <laughs> at this point. Yeah, exactly. 
Uh, well, I mean, I am, but that's for a different reason. But um, <laughs> I, I think, you know, this show probably needed a moment of audience dialogue with the audience, or at least a sort of uh, a, a voice from not the outside exactly, but someone who's who, who issues a final verdict. And I think that that in some ways comes from Linda, the lawyer character played by Michaela Watkins, who I believe is an amalgamation of people. I don't think Linda Tanner herself is real. Mm hmm. But, you know, she has this big scene in the empty office where she's screaming at Elizabeth, you hurt people, you hurt people. Do you think she, what do you think she means by that? Is she referring specifically to the patients in Arizona who got false diagnoses? Do you think she means herself, her reputation? I, I'm, I'm curious what you made of that scene and maybe was it too on the nose or just right? I think it's on the nose. I think it also is, like you said, that the kind of like conclusion that the show felt like it, like it doesn't. It's it's too self-aware to want to turn Elizabeth into some kind of some kind of martyr or some kind of like, I don't know, somebody who was just misguided. Um, I, I think that it is important for the show to point out, like, at the end, it understands like she is a criminal. She did things that were wrong. Um, she doesn't seem to understand that herself, uh, at least as, you know, portrayed by the show. Um but so it's it's definitely a little neat and uh, I can see why it could like maybe stick out because so much of the show is is subtle um, and not really spelled out in as many words. But I think I think that moment didn't bother me too much. Yeah. And I think the way it's played by Michaela Watkins and the way it's written. um, There is a quality of empathy there. You're like, wow, this woman is, and and many people like her at Theranos, like all of those empty desks represent a person. Um, They're really screwed. Yeah. And I mean, in some sense, they made their beds. I mean, especially somebody like Michaela Watkins' character who, you know, knew that things were not on the up and up from, you know, longer, longer ago than the regulatory agencies found, found out. Well, exactly. I mean, there's a slight quality of yelling at the casino. You know, with your empty pockets out, you know, and moths flying out. It's like, well, okay, but like there, there, there was a complicity here, especially yeah. as we you saw. You knew Linda I was a scorpion in, yeah. when you asked me to take you across the river. <laughs> exactly. You know, we've seen Linda in previous episodes be pretty ruthless in 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 service, and and also kind of chanting along, maybe a little reluctant, reluctantly to the kind of cultish aspects of the company. So, so I think it's a complicated uh, final moment for not 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 Linda the character per se, but all the people that she sort of represents. in that. Yeah, moment. I don't think she cares so much about the people who got hurt, whether it's employees or patients or, you know, investors. I think I, I think it's I, she certainly cares that they got caught. Uh, that kind of feels like the real bottom line. Yeah. And, and then we do have this kind of pure vindication uh, on the side of John Carreyou and his editor, Judith Baker, who I believe also is a fictional character played by the great Lisa Gay Hamilton. Um, what do you make of that side of things? Do you think um, do you think it got journalism right? <laughs> well, I think that uh, it gets journalism more right than inventing Anna, um, to name another reason show <laughs> well, that kind a, of a lowish bar, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it does. It does. Uh, you know, that, I think that moment was pretty cheesy too. When he yells, "What I, I fell in love with federal bureaucracy, and I don't care yeah. who knows it." Like that's okay. But, I, I feel like, you know, you want to give him a moment of triumph, but that was that was goofy. I mean, but journalists are lame. So in that sense, maybe it did get us right. I don't know. 
Well, if you, my editor, uh, if I ever say <laughs> to you, uh, you've just given me the pep talk I've been wanting for you from you for, from you for years, you have full permission to fire me on the spot. <laughs> that was corny. <laughs> for being but at a the goober, same time, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, I get like, I, I, I like the central spirit of it, which was that this was, yes, their job. They're an editor and a reporter trying to um, do their, their job to the best of their ability. But they also saw this as a public good, you know, and I think it, it was. I think that's borne out, as did Erica Chung's um, shrewd decision to appeal to the, what was it, Office of Medicare or something, you know, Medicare, Medicaid. So boring, uh, as they said on the show that I've already forgotten the acronym. <laughs> right, exactly. But but her, but her point is that you can't spin boring. Right. Like, you, like it, 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 if it is just some pencil-pushing bureaucrat with no, you know, horse in the game to, or horse in the race to just be like, I just need to look at the labs, that's all. Um, then how can you fight that? You can't accuse that organization necessarily being sexist or whatever because they're just going by sheer concrete fact where they could kind of spin the Wall Street yeah. Journal article. Which no, totally. I, I really liked that scene when Sonny is, you know, trying to give him a PowerPoint presentation and trying to kind of spin the the same sort of bullshit that's gotten them this far. And the regulator is just like, nope, I just have a checklist. I literally just have to look and mark off things that you are and are not doing. Um, and yeah, it's, it's funny. It's funny to see bureaucracy come in to save the day. Um, yeah. But I guess that, yeah, that is that is the enemy of tech and of Silicon Valley and of this like era of startups. Well, yeah, I mean, it's so interesting that at least in, I mean, I'm sure there there were a variety of factors working at once. Um, but like in the show's version of things, like it was just this humble bureaucrat who's like, no, you're shut down for two years. And that's really what what you know that was the final string on the sweater you know to undo it all um and i think that goes back to something that we had talked about early on this podcast about elizabeth holmes's big mistake which was you can bullshit about a rideshare app you can bullshit about you know a co-working space but when it comes to people's health when it comes to something as heavily regulated as that in the united states at a certain point the jig will be up yeah, it was definitely a more serious offense that had more serious consequences for actual human beings. Yeah, and they're lucky, you know, that it was only these false diagnoses, you know, of a handful of people in Arizona. Uh, it could have been way worse. Uh, totally. And, you know, I think I think the show and Liz Merriweather had mentioned this back when I interviewed her for the first episode of this podcast that um, Erica Chung would really kind of emerge as this hero, and I think she does in a very humble fashion in this episode. Yeah, yeah, it's nice that it's not too overdone either that, you know, it's it's a reporter calling her and she's asleep and she's like, oh, that's great. And then she kind of has to figure out how to go back to her life. Yeah. And now she and Tyler are working in this kind of ethics and entrepreneurship thing and, 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 and learning from this god awful experience and, and moving forward. I have no idea what became of a lot of other Theranos employees. I think that, you know, we might never know that. Yeah, I am. I am curious how, you know, do you pretend like. You just have a gap on your resume to you admit what you were doing and just say that you didn't have anything to do with the really bad stuff. I don't know. I'm 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 curious. Right. Like, is it the Trump administration where you you leave and then try to claim, oh, I always hated it. And here's my book about it. Please, you know, give me a million dollar <laughs> advance. I don't think that works here. So, um, you know, that's maybe all the more reason for a season two, just to yeah, see for, more of the fallout. For sure. Um, I mean, do you believe um elizabeth when she says in that interview i don't believe that we put anyone's health in danger is do you think she's deluded do you think i mean i guess she kind of she kind of plays her hand when she's talking to her mother about how you know she basically 
got over her sexual assault, the way that her mother told her to was just kind of forget about it and pretend like it didn't happen. And she says, if you choose to forget certain things, do you think that's lying? And I don't know. It's an interesting question. Do you think the show kind of answers that as far as Elizabeth is concerned? You know, I, I don't know. I, I think that it had to, Liz Merriweather and the other writers and, and Amanda Seyfried, to some extent, had to leave it a bit ambiguous because no one really knows. You mm-hmm. know, uh, I, I think that Elizabeth believes what she believes uh, and believes in herself, I think, most importantly. Um, and I think at the end of the season, genu- the end of the series, maybe, genuinely does think that this was a great idea that was just thwarted. And she she spends... So much time in this episode railing against regulators and regulation and all that. If we had just been able to do what we wanted to do, we would have been fine. When, of course, we know that's not true. Because yeah, and the tech at a just point, never there. yeah, at, at a point in her own, like on the show itself and in her own history, like she recognized that the machines didn't work. And rather than trying to make them work, she just decided to pretend like that wasn't the truth. Right, exactly. Um, which I think is actually a good place to cut to uh, my interview with Amanda Seyfried, who has a lot of thoughts about. Um, what Elizabeth believed about the company and about herself. Uh, so let's hear from that. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically, I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Well, I have the distinct honor of having on the line today the star of the dropout, Amanda Seyfried. Amanda, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So this is a big undertaking, this show, this role. I'm curious when it was presented to you, what what attracted you to it? And, and also, conversely, what scared you about it? Well, I had already been very familiar with the story. I don't want to say a fan of the story, but I had already seen the documentary and I'd already listened to the Dropout podcast at that point that I joined the show. And I think the thing that I was so attracted to was well, Liz Merriweather, um, for a start, who I know to be incredibly smart and thoughtful and unique, um, always able to find the humor in, in darkness in such a way that I really relate to. And also her tackling another 
very unique woman. And I, I was just fascinated by the possibilities, like what, you know, how Liz would relate, would, would connect the audience to this very um, infamous person. And, um, and it just seemed like a, the most incredible opportunity. And that opportunity came so, so, so fresh off the heels of my Oscar nomination that it, it just felt like, you know, good things beget good things and opportunities. And I, it, it just seemed like this was the best opportunity I'd ever been given to play such a enigmatic role. And obviously it was really scary too, because of the responsibility of, of telling the story, you know, from an em empathetic point of view, you know, you, you have a, such a responsibility to the character that you play, but also make it thrive, make it survive on screen, you know, make it interesting, make, uh, make sure that we're hitting all the right points and, and including all the elements of good TV without w serving the story without, you know, diverting. And it's just all the, all the issues you would have when you're the star of a show. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's interesting that you you said you you know you'd seen the documentary. You knew you know a lot about this story. I'm curious in the process of making the show and embodying its central figure, did your opinion of it change? Did you learn things or get a different perspective on it than you started off with? I did. I I learned. The more time you spend with somebody, whether you're with them in a room, communicating with them, or you're across the country studying them. Um, it's still time spent with somebody. And I think that naturally breeds a need to get closer. And in getting closer, I was able to, you know, connect some dots, you know, connect behaviors to choices. And, you know, everything that was written that Liz Merriweather wrote felt like it could have been true. You know, we don't know if it's true, but it, it made sense and it and it gave a foundation that we had yet to find in these documentaries, this investigative journalism. Um, it was always to try to get as many facts as possible. And our job here was to create an imagined reality between the facts. And we had that goalpost. We had, it, there was just so solidified. We had so much information. I guess I just learned more about where she came from and why she might have made the why she might have made the decisions that she made. And I just um, I felt like I had I had entered the world of, of, of a well-rounded human being, as opposed to a two-dimensional villain. Something we've been talking about on this podcast throughout the run of the series is the really shrewd way that you and Liz Merriweather court our fascination, our horrified awe at what everything that was happening, but also there's empathy in there. You know, the show kind of stokes that in the viewer, I think. Where do you think that source of empathy is? Like, what part of Elizabeth Holmes is the part that we should see and care about as a person, even though she did all these harmful things? It's a good question. I think it's um, her drive is you know, in the beginning, it's admirable. I just, she would really stop at nothing to get where she wanted to go. And it seemed like a really good purpose and um, beautiful passion. And it was easy to connect with her, her reasons that she claimed that were behind this company. 
who doesn't want to change the world for the better, change healthcare as we know it, um, you know, change people's lives and, and take away those incredibly scary moments and um, get information in such an easy way. It just seems more accessible for everybody around the world. It would have been amazing. Like, how could you not connect to that messaging? Also, her awkwardness. I mean, she's, when you watch her speak, you feel connected to her. And I'm just saying this in my own experience and people I've spoken to. And also, and people who really invested in this company uh, financially and emotionally, I think it's just really hard not to be pulled in to the way she speaks. You know, she speaks with so much humility and it feels so honest. And, <laughs> and yet, you know, it's not. But I think when people laugh at themselves, that's the thing that always drew me in and made me trust people. She was able to do that. Yeah, I mean, she does talk about wanting to help people and sort of change the world in a I think a purely altruistic sense. She also says in the first episode, I want to be a billionaire. That's the thing. That's what's so confusing. Yeah. Do you think those things are mutually exclusive or can they exist together? Is that possible? I think you can have, the both can be true. Yeah. I, I, I you know, I want to be a billionaire too. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, same. Fair. That would be amazing. <laughs> but if you're just going to try to come up with ways to become a billionaire, then your intention doesn't really matter. I think if like your first goal is to become rich off of something, then you do anything. If your priority is not the well-being of others above that, you know, I'm not saying that her priority was just to become a billionaire, but if it was, which at times in this series, in this, in this story, it seems that that's the case. Um, but yeah, they can, you can have, both can be true. Um, but it, it did seem like the billionaire goal came first in a lot of ways. And, and that seed was planted very early. So it's easy to question her motives in starting Theranos. On the sort of map of Elizabeth Holmes that you've drawn in, in playing this character, over eight hours. Is there a point you see where she stops believing it herself? You know, because all the way up to the finale, she's still saying, we can do this. This is this is real. But do you think that she was lying to herself and to others? Or how did you kind of calibrate how much Elizabeth actually bought into what she was saying? I think there was a point when the Walgreens guys were coming in that she understood from just my perspective of, of our version of it. I played it like she understood that she wasn't where she needed to be, but it didn't take away the power of believing that they were on the right track. It just was going to take longer. And I think it's like, it's like, <laughs> this is a stupid analogy, but it's, it's like when you're under construction and every month they're like, ah, oh, it's probably going to be end of the next month. And then you're at the end of the next month and you're, it's just that belief that it's going to get done. It's just, it's just taking a long time, but it's going to be worth it. And I think that's what she always believed till the very, very end. I think she still believes that this is going to happen and it's going to change the world. She's no longer in control of that. But I think it's not science fiction exactly, but at the point that she was talking about it being a real thing, a thing that exists, 
like that her technology did in fact exist and work. It felt more like science fiction. I think there was a switch that was flipped when it felt like it was, she was going to lose it all. And instead of letting it go, she just doubled down. And the power of belief in your own reality is so, it's really one of the most miraculous things in terms of how powerful humans are. Um, I think that's where she's at. I think that's where she's at by the end. Um, just, just 100% behind herself. Um, it's just a slight moment with the Walgreens guys about timing, but never, never believing that it wasn't going to work. Yeah. And I think you feel that, I think that is part of the empathy in a weird way, because you're like, I want to believe it too. And I, you know, she just so ardently cares for it. And I think a big part of that is that we meet her in the show when she's so young, you know, she's what, yeah. 17, 18 years old. And then we follow her all the way up into her mid thirties. So, you know, obviously there's a big transformation with your voice and all that, but also you know, on the technical side of things, like what did you do to sort of age up with Elizabeth? God, that's a good question. I, 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 I consciously was, you know, channeling just myself as a 17 year old. It was, it was, it was a while ago, but I'm still very, it's all in my body that the trauma of being a teenager is just like forever may it exist somewhere in a bubble inside of me. Um, and I think I just connected to that because it, it was really, it was a lot easier to portray Elizabeth as a teenager in her awkwardness and, you know, with her dynamics with her parents and her brother and the kids at school. It was just, it felt more natural for me to just play as I was in that time period. And um, I just, I, I, I just related to her way easier. And so when she got a little bit older and more independent and her will just got stronger and she evolved into that businesswoman that uh, just grabbed them by the balls, businesswoman, um, it was, it was a little trickier because it's, it's harder to relate to. And now I don't, I, I'm, if, if, if I hadn't gotten to experience her younger self, that uh, perspective, I, I don't, you know, just, it just obviously would have been harder for the audience to really kind of get swept up in the journey and, and, and feel as conflicted as hopefully people have been feeling um, or felt in the beginning of the series. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just Elizabeth who we see kind of evolve over the course of the show. It's also her relationship with Sonny, uh, played by Naveen Andrews. I'm curious how you two as actors approached the difficulty of that, uh, of kind of telling that relationship story, because it ends so bleakly, you know. Yeah. And even though in the early scenes in Beijing, Sonny is a lot older and there's maybe something slightly predatory, maybe adjacent about that, but it also is sweet. So um, did you and Naveen like talk about how this was going to happen or was it just like, okay, we're on set and we just have to kind of figure that chemistry out in the moment? Yeah, we had rehearsal and we talked about the scripts a lot with um, with Liz Merriweather, Michael Showalter and Catherine Pope. She, We were all in a room together about a month before we started shooting and and we talked about what we felt we needed to explore more. And I think there was some moments added 
to their getting to know each other montage because it did really, it was really sweetly written, probably more so than it had any right to be. But in TV, you've, you've got to be able to connect to these people and, and you've got to kind of root for them a little bit. Uh, so Elizabeth, Liz Merriweather wrote a, some beautiful moments of them getting to know each other. And, um, and I do feel like we've earned where they end up before they get, you know, they start working together. But it was, it was cringy a lot of the times. And Naveen and I would, you know, um, it, it almost feel, I don't want to speak for him, but it felt like we were both kind of commiserating and like how heartbreaking a lot of these moments that Liz wrote are and how, how believable they are um, and probably happened in, in some way or another from where they started and where they ended up. Only they know, but um, the accounts that we've gotten from like the trial and stuff, it feels like we played it kind of definitely more in the vein of what, what's possible. And it was important for us to to get awkward and, 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 and get dark um, and show both sides of the coin with them, like when it was good and when it was really bad and when it was really manipulative, because I think they're both incredibly manipulative people. And when you feel that codependency as an outsider, when you're with two people who are kind of stuck together emotionally, psychologically, it feels very strange to behold and, 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 and like embodying these people was just it teach it reminds you of the things that you don't want in a relationship so it needed to feel tumultuous at a point but it also needed to feel like they were in that relationship because they felt safest with each other so how do you show that and like like everything two things can be true at the same time um so i don't know i, I think we i think we had some incredible writing and it turns out that you know we were more right than we were than we thought we were. Yeah, it's a it's a really it's a really nuanced dynamic, you know. And what I think is so powerful about the end of the show is that this is two people really going at each other, and you know we know what happened in real life where they kind of did sort of turn on each other and throw blame, you know, throw each other under the bus essentially. But you do feel sad still, you know, uh, which is not not hard to do, um, or not easy to do rather. It's not. Yeah, I I just. I, I see episode seven shooting. It was hard. Those scenes were on a very technical level, pretty challenging and it, trying to get the balance right. I had a trickier time with, with that scene when I leave the house and I pack up, that was probably the, 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 the hardest, the, the biggest challenge I had on the whole show because I, you know, you had to earn that. And again, I don't want to speak for him, but I, I think he felt this very similarly. And and then you kind of get all the way around to the moment of almost sweetness when he says, "I, you know, you know, I'll never hurt you. And it's almost like leaving on such a clean, I mean, it's not, but it feels almost like she didn't deserve that kind of honesty and commitment to her. Like, it's just, and, and it's heartbreaking 
on so many levels. And it's just like that, just all writing, you know, I mean, of course it's our performances and the whole thing together, the directing and, but it's also just like to be able to write something with that much of an impact that tells so many things in just few moments is just like beyond my scope of understanding. I think something that's really striking about that scene where you're packing up in the house is that it is a big moment of release. We don't, we don't, Elizabeth has spent so much time on this show being, you know, very controlled, very centered, some might say tightly wound. And there are other moments like that throughout the series, which I think brings in some of Liz Merriweather's humor, you know, um, dancing scenes and these scenes of release, uh, even if it's creepy and she's wearing a mask of herself, <laughs> you know, um, were those cathartic for you as a performer to do as well? Incredibly. Like, I never get the opportunity or I very rarely get the opportunity to be weird and awkward and and just free. And so it was incredibly cathartic, liberating all the things. Hilarious. I mean, we do it and they, they say rolling and they have the music on and we're just really committing to the awkwardness of it the darkness of it because it's dark as as anything um the way these people relate to each other and to themselves it's um it can be it's almost painful to watch for some people but that's what makes it so thrilling to actually perform as an as an actor like I get to I get to move my body in ways that I would never it would never make sense to move that way and, and I get to do that and it makes sense in this instant and it also has like such a, an effect on the audience. And it's just like, I shouldn't be watching this. It's like watching two people make love. It's like you, there's an intimacy there in the dancing throughout that it just feels like it's not for anyone's eyes. And that is all Liz Merriweather. Like how do, how do they express themselves this way? <laughs> And then we also have, you know, the closing scene of the whole series. Um, so spoiler alert, if people haven't watched, um, is this horrific, but also, again, cathartic primal scream moment. I'm curious, first off, what do you think she's screaming about? And also, if you have any reflection on when you filmed that, was it, you know, was it toward the end of the shoot or any? I'm just curious about how what that felt like for you as an actor. Uh, terrifying mainly because it's the last I mean I love binging shows and if it's if the last scene of a an 8 hour miniseries isn't satisfying it leaves just a bad taste in my mouth so I knew how important it was and I still didn't know I I there was something that needed to happen that wasn't necessarily written or it was written and I didn't necessarily know how to portray it because there's so many possibilities and I just needed to trust myself. But I think it was just screaming also is incredibly hard on the body. It's just your whole, it's your whole body. I think it was almost, and this is not a great word, but I think the scream came from a very petulant place. Mm -hmm. Almost like she was not angry with herself at all. Like that seemed to me like it could have been, it could have played like, She's so devastated that it didn't work out and she's so mad at herself. But that is not at all what I think that was about. I think it was like 
fuck you world. Fuck you for not laying down for me. Fuck you for not for not working out. Like it's a I'm, tantrum. I'm gonna get them. It's a tantrum. Yeah, it's like a. That's when there should be like a season two. <laughs> no, I mean I'm, <laughs> I keep putting it out there because I didn't know how much I was gonna enjoy playing her until I was done, and then even after that, I I was like I'll never play her again. That's just that was just hard. That was that was a lot. And now I just, I miss it, and I feel like there's so much more to say, and there's so much more that's happened. I mean, life goes on. She's my age. Um, lots happened. There is a season two of The Dropout, and it's just like, I didn't consider that before when we shot that last scene, so I was like, how does, you know, it's such a badass scene, but it's also in sequence, but it's but it's also like, what's happening? Where, where is she going, you know? And for anyone who who watched the story closely, like everyone knows where she's going to trial, but also like that petulance, that anger at the world just shows you exactly where the effect that all this had on her, which is to say not much. That's what I believe. Yeah. Um, I mean, she's a kid saying no fair, right? Yeah, no fair. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it. I'm not, don't stop me. And I want to know more. It's so funny. I was having drinks with a colleague last night and I was like, oh, I'm going to interview Amanda tomorrow. And he said, oh, you should ask her if there's going to be a season two. And I said, no, she wouldn't want to do a season two. But I, I guess I was wrong. Yeah, I know. I wouldn't have thought I would have wanted to either. I, you, know, you sign all these deals when you're doing TV now because everything's TV. And it's so hard to say, no, only one season because people want to do a bajillion seasons and sign you up forever. But it for me, like it would, it wouldn't feel comfortable committing to something, especially if I don't have a great time on the first season, and if like it, it doesn't end up flowing or like working out in some way, and it feels just too stressful to be, you know, something I would want to commit to long term. It's just you never know. And now I, I see, it was very hard. It was the most fun I've ever had, though, as an actor because it was a character. Um, you know, I, so many of my actor friends, and I have. A lot of friends who are actors, like New York theater actors especially, and so many of them said, like, this is, like, the first character you've ever played. Like, truly, like, yes, I play Marion Davies, but, but like, this is a character. This is me adopting a new way of walking and speaking and communicating. And it's just, this is actually what I was always meant to do, or I always meant to give in the, I was, like, get, getting the opportunity was, was, very new to me to play somebody like this. And so now I think it's also partly wanting to do a season two is also partly being like, but but let me do it again. <laughs> Cause when am I going to get the opportunity to play somebody that I, that I felt like I could really nail. So that's just also a fear like that. I'll never get the opportunity. And it's also that there's a lot more to say and do. And, um, Liz Merriweather is, you know, it, it was a lot harder and longer and a longer process for her than it was for anybody. So it's really up to her what she decides to do next. And and I'm happy if it's just like two or three episodes or like a, a movie. Like it, it would just it would be the another thrill of my life if I got to continue it a little bit. Well, I'm putting my request in now for more Laurie Metcalf scenes between with the two of you because <laughs> that kiss off yeah. scene with her is electric, and you know you're both brilliant in it, and it's just Thanks. yeah. 
This cast was insane. By the the, oh yeah, I mean it's it's so stacked. Elizabeth Marvel, incredible um, mm-hmm. in this last episode. Yeah. Oh yeah, I haven't seen it yet. Oh, it's quite something. Um, and that that final scene is is really. I don't think people will feel that dissatisfaction of of a less than finale. So okay. put those worries to rest. You know, Amanda, I think we're out of time, but this was so great. And thank you for the work. You really did nail it. And it's been a thrill to watch. And you kind of enter a new era of your acting career. I think it's it's really cool. So thank it's you. It's nice for to sh- be this age. You know, yeah. I, I play moms now. And I, I don't know why, where I heard it. But like back in the day, I remember people talking about, oh, now I only play parents. I only play mothers. And it's just actually like the things that are being written and that I'm getting the opportunities to do are just, they're all parents, but I can relate to that in a way. And it also, I kind of think makes people way more interesting. Anybody in their thirties and forties, like they just, they're more interesting roles, whether they're parents or not, but being a parent and getting to play people with kids, it's just like, there's, there's a lot there, a lot more than, than the roles that I, that were available when I was in my twenties. So just like, it's good timing for me. Okay, so Hillary, um, do you have any final thoughts on the dropout, or should we move on to the other tech disasters? Um, I do want to note that in this episode, before her fall, um, Elizabeth said that she's getting an award from Jared Leto. Yeah, isn't that funny? And Which then is so in, funny. <laughs> in We Crashed, we see him find out about Travis Kalanick being ousted from Uber. <laughs> I know, it's it's really like the... Uh, all of the this is like the Avengers Endgame moment when everybody somehow <laughs> yeah. is in the same place at the same time, and somehow we crash spoiled super pumped because we have <laughs> not gotten to Travis Kalanick's ouster yet. We are one episode away from that. Um, so oh, yeah, this oops, was the, if you're if you're yeah, uh, yeah, listening sorry. to this and you were not like uh, watching news, I guess in 2017, then it, it's like when Jared Leto came out of that retreat and didn't know about the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, this is the penultimate episode of. Uh, super pumped and I, I think you know this show has had a much brasher sort of hard charging comportment than have we crashed and the dropout but this episode tries to I think in some ways humanize Travis not necessarily for sympathy but just sort of context we see him we obviously see the tragedy with his mother Bonnie Kalanick who died in a boating accident in 2017 um, we and we see earlier in the episode when the video of him berating an Uber driver, arguing with an Uber driver over uh, pay cuts. Essentially, um, he drops to the floor and starts kind of crying and saying, "What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me?" Um, did that sway you toward Travis Kalanick at all? Honestly, I, I, I've watched the show and I don't totally understand, according to the version of Travis that's been on the show, why that video is such a big deal, like in the show's own universe. I get why it would be to outsiders who are not aware of Uber uh, and, you know, his personality and like the cult of personality that he's created around himself. But I don't totally understand why everybody on the show treats it as this enormous, terrible bombshell when he's known for being outspoken and brash and you know cocky and i I don't know i i don't really get why it made such a splash why that was the silver bullet above yeah of all things like with the sexual harassment and all of the partying and i don't know it just doesn't seem like that would necessarily be the last straw given what we've seen already but apparently was a big deal i mean i guess my my best 
uh, guess as to that is that like in this episode we see uber having a major optics problem um with the hashtag delete uber mm-hmm. st- stemmed from their actions during the the taxi um strike uh, and him joining to- trump's economic yeah. council right and so you have an immigrant driver basically saying because of your changes in policy i've lost all this money and travis the brash billionaire being like "Eh, you're wrong you're wrong you're wrong at a time you know so it's basically like it might not be the worst thing internally that travis and the company have done but it looks and it can be shared you know looks the worst and it can be shared you know infinitely online um and on twitter especially which we see a lot of in this episode yeah i guess i just feel like if there was a leaked video of i don't know elon musk like yelling at a guy who worked at a tesla factory it wouldn't like right, be this right. enormous scandal well people would cheer him probably exactly how that goes um it was funny though uh, the guy dan o'sullivan the chicago tweeter guy who does delete uber uh he used to go by bro pair on twitter like i kind of twitter know him <laughs> and i had no so idea you're in this episode gonna... too yeah <laughs> in that in that way you mean yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no just yeah, just exactly. as a connection Right. Yeah, exactly. No, you're right. You're right. Yes. So everything is connected. Um, And, you know, it is funny, though, that like he had like a pretty decent Twitter following, but like that this show credits him. And I guess he did create the hashtag with this major, major thing, at least in the show's diagnosis of events, like that this was the thing that really started to tear the whole thing down. I don't know. I mean, I guess maybe there's a weird dichotomy there where we're learning about the evilness of a tech company but maybe there's this other tech company that inadvertently comes to take that tech company down i don't know everyone's just eating each other i guess <laughs> well yeah the the twitter version of this show this like tech downfall show is going to i don't know how many seasons that's going to need yeah well <laughs> that's going to be a whole you know gun smoke kind of situation <laughs> uh 23 seasons or something um you know we also have another infamous event um, depicted to some extent in this episode with um, Gabby recalling this trip to Seoul uh, when uh, they all went to a karaoke thing following a meeting and there were these hostesses who were sort of had numbers on them and were picked out, you know, as a kind of lineup situation. Um, and, and Emile Michael uh, becomes the real figurehead of that scandal and um, is ousted out of the company. I had known about this event prior to the show because it was you know one of the more headline grabbing things like former girlfriend says this happened while she was there and another female executive was there um do you think that was given its proper due in this episode i I thought it was weird to have it just be this kind of flashback moment yeah it felt it did feel like a throwaway um i sort of think that it could have it deserved a little more time and a little more unpacking about what exactly happened and who hit who was involved yeah, yeah, and I think especially because it 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 led to this this major guy being ousted, but it was a complicated ouster because he was brought in by Bill Gurley, who in this show's version of things has kind of been framed as the sane, rational, decent one. Yeah, as um, the straight shooter. Right. So you have Bill Gurley and you have, you know, his wife played by Jessica Hecht, um, you, you know, sort of saying you have to cut bait. And, he, and, and and Bill keeps saying like, well, I, you know, I thought I was bringing in a goat to pacify the horse in the barn, but some mutation happened and this went bad. So in a way, it's 
this emblem of like, oh, I thought we could do this in a decent way, kind of reckoning with the fact that no, maybe this whole institution corrupts almost everyone who becomes involved in it or victimizes them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I did, I did like the quote uh, from one of the peons at the company. They fired Himmler to make Hitler seem less culpable. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe a because bit you- dramatic, but. <laughs> I, I, yeah, and I also I, that does make me kind of question how the show is framed because, like, we've definitely seen Emil and Gil and a couple other male, you know, employees at Uber be, be really bad, and we've seen Travis be an asshole. But I don't quite feel in this episode where they keep referencing Austin Geit has this big fight with him, where she's like, "Everyone is starting to hate you in the company." That there's other employees who are really getting fed up. The, the line about Hitler and Himmler. I don't know. I, I d- does Travis feel bad enough uh, in this show's version of things now that we're almost toward the end? I don't know if he does either. I'm with you. I mean, especially like you, you see, you see him talking about the Trump stuff kind of vaguely, and you know, making the case for you know that he doesn't like Trump, but that he is going to join this council so that he can like walk into the White House and have influence. Um, like I feel like. In the show's version of events, like he's definitely like a blowhard, um, but he doesn't seem necessarily like a bad guy. And I don't know really why the tides turn, except if the Trump Association is enough to kind of tip the scales, which I mean, in early 2017, like we were all there like that was that was a that was a crazy time. Emotions were running high. I can understand why that would be the tipping point, like in in and of itself, regardless of how he's presenting himself otherwise. Yeah, and I don't really believe this version of Travis when he says, I don't like him either, but I can right. at least be in there. Because then he says, I can be in there, and you think he's going to say, and sway him toward better policy. He's like, protect what we've built. And it's like, oh, so you're not actually there to, like, you know, curtail this, you know, megalomaniacal. Yeah, and why would he, yeah. I, if he hates regulation the way that he clearly hates regulation and has been talking about for six episodes, I don't know why he would be anti-Trump. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I, I'll be curious to see where the where the show ends next week. Um, you know, obviously we know what's going to happen. Thanks a lot, we crashed. Um, <laughs> but but also just like where it comes down in its sort of moral assessment of well, of and all of and this. lest we lest we glaze over it, um, it also ends with another confession to another journalist. So uh, it's it's going to be journalists three, tech people zero by That's the end right. of and- this. And in the in the in the show, this employee goes to a, a journalist character called Olivia to tell her about uh, the gray balling. But in reality, that journalist was Mike Isaac, uh, who wrote the book that this show is based on. Uh, he was the one who scooped the gray balling story um, because of uh, a, a someone a whistleblower within the company. So, I'll has Mike Isaac appeared that. as a character? Uh, I don't believe so. No, I think they have left him out of it and put in That's this sort other of interesting. Journalist. Yeah. I wonder. Yeah, I know. I wonder why we have to carry you. So you know, literally, you know, a, a character on on the dropout. But um, well, yeah. So we we mentioned we crash spoiling the show, but I think that what what really where we crashed has an this episode of we crashed has an interesting similarity to Super Pumped is that we also see its towering messianic figure at the center of things have his own version of a breakdown. The episode ends just about with him crying on Rebecca's lap after Masa says, "I can't." Uh, buy the other investors out uh, and I think Adam starts to realize that uh, things have really started to hit the fan um, did this episode feel like do you did, ha, ha, did it make you feel any differently about Adam I think it was trying to in some ways 
Oh, do you think that it was trying to like create a sympathy for him that previous episodes didn't have? I don't know if it was a sympathy about his character as a whole, but I think we were maybe supposed to like feel his desperation mm-hmm. in a less than schadenfreude way. Yeah, that's true. He has never really felt desperate, I guess, to this point. But I mean, it's it's also sort of, you know, it's it is all clearly of his own making. Like he's the one who's not <laughs> who's not getting out of bed on time for this incredibly impo- important meeting with this investor from Abu Dhabi. Like there is there is a. Uh, Nobody here to blame for what's happening to WeWork except for him. Well, unless I guess you count Rebecca. Well, it, it, you know, his also his incredibly important, you know, opening day of school chat with four year olds who couldn't care less who he is. But well, yeah. And <laughs> speaking of connections between the shows, um, the the Adam and Rebecca fight here is mirrored a, mirrors a little bit the fight between Elizabeth and Sunny. I mean, it's kind of the first time you see them turning against each other and really kind of saying hurtful things in a way in in this like vitriolic way um which i thought was interesting because the the like message of we crashed is you know these two people are terrible at business but they do seem to have a really actual like loving relationship and a true bond and like they deserve each other yeah i mean the show is sort of billed as a love story you know and i I think that's still in there i think it's a really complicated compromise kind of love but to have adam say to rebecca what uh, Alicia had just said last week some version of you know yeah, you have no shine that of she your does, own yeah she but, has nothing that everything she has she's been given by him yeah and I I think that the the we grow thing which was one of the more outlandishly cult like things that came out of this whole fiasco um you know when 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 every time a story about WeWork has touched on that matter it's been like oh this is getting actually really kind of creepy because you know. <laughs> As this char- this ca- character from Benchmark, Cameron says, like, why is a work a work share company opening a school? <laughs> but in their mind, or at least Rebecca's mind, and to some extent, Adam, because Rebecca's flattering his vision, they're like, well, of course, we're we're gonna we everything. Um, but like, would you ever send your kid to that kind of school? I don't think so. Well, it's less of a school and more of a practice and new approach to life. Uh, so oh, thank in you. that, yes, yeah. yeah. So in that sense, oh, I mean, obviously, it's the the I I think that the the comedy of the show really comes out in the Rebecca scenes and, you know, the scene where she's talking to the headmaster at her kid's old school and just saying about how, you know, listening in on Adam's business calls is teaching them entrepreneurship and like the teacher or the headmistress or whoever she is. is like, well, you know, we actually can't concentrate more on things like arithmetic, like right. yeah. being able to read. Well, she says conscious entrepreneurship, which if these three shows have told us anything, it's like, is there is maybe no such thing <laughs> as like, you know, heal the world entrepreneurship. I mean, I'm sure there is. There are plenty of companies doing genuinely good things in, in good ways. But I don't know. You haven't uh, seen a show like this about like Warby Parker. Yeah, that's true. I'm sure there but there's probably some darkness lurking there as I wear my Warby Parker glasses. Um, yeah, the, the the Rebecca stuff, I think increasingly is the most interesting thing about the show. Um, I think mostly because maybe because we've spent, you know, a lot of our time also with Travis Kalanick and we're used to the and, and, and previous to that social network with these brash men who, you know, are kind of taking over the world or trying fast to and and break then, things. Whereas Rebecca, I think so intriguingly on this show is presented as a crisis of a much broader culture, this wellness stuff, all the stuff that Goop kind of helped bring about. And this 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 thought that if once I get enough money and I have enough Instagram followers and I have the right look and I have the right house, all that, 
then I can go about not just holistically healing my life and bettering my life, but then turning that outward and going evangelical about it. And and in that is a real sickness, I think. Like, isn't there something really gross about this whole movement that the sh- that the Rebecca character on the show represents? Oh, yeah, completely. And the way that it just kind of picks and chooses bits of spiritualism and uh, and like culture from, you know, wherever it feels like her her only her only two teachers are Mother Nature and His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. Like that is that is insanity. Yeah. And she has the conversation with the New York Times reporter who she then poached to be, to go, come work for the company. And he's like, so wait, what is the mission of the school? And she just gives him all this gobbledygook and he has to be like, OK, I guess that'll work. You know, it, it's so empty. And and yeah, I, and, guess- I mean, and that's and this is dangerous, too, almost in the same way that Theranos is like, imagine being these kids who spend a year or two in this ridiculous, like anti-education environment where they're what sit like sitting in a circle and chanting and then like i don't know making a lemonade stand or something to learn about capitalism like that just that that seems like such a terrible loss yeah and something that bummed me out about the, the school you know obviously it's very telling that uh rebecca focused so much on the aesthetics of the space and not really about the mission statement beyond just a simple kind of you know pablo or a about curriculum whatever. But like there don't seem to be rooms and it's like you want a bunch of little kids just all in one huge open space with no walls to like block sound or anything like that. Like that feels like a failure design. Yeah, I mean, I would I would watch a show set at that school, like in in Abbott Elementary about working for a crazy uh, billionaire's like insane vision. Well, did you ever hear about that school avenues? Do you remember that in New York? Oh, I remember. Didn't Surrey Cruz go there? She did. That's, I think, why most people, including myself, uh, first heard of it. But it was a for-profit startup prep school thing that I don't know what its mission statement was exactly. I think it was a bit more concrete, and I think they had actual educators running it. But, like, um, that, I think, has since gone away, Um, you know, which is a, you know, it's interesting that that We Grow was not the first of these kind of startup for-profit school things that uh yeah that, that costs fifty thousand dollars a year yeah. or something insane for your five-year-old right i think there's an interesting line in this episode um kind of speaking to the emptiness of rebecca's kind of spiritual vision for things and and how it relates to adam and adam's own you know he's talking to miguel uh about the whole like i want to get masa to buy us all the investors out so we can be free and no, no oversight no ipo nothing like that and he says, we were both raised on a kibbutz or on a commune. Mm-hmm. Adam was on a kibbutz. Um, and earlier, much earlier in this in this season, that was used as this starting point to have this discussion about communal living and the joy of sharing things and, you know, collectivism, essentially. And in this episode, he said, we were both raised on communes. We know what it is not to have anything of your own. And this is ours. And it's like, OK, so wait. So this is where that ethos stops it's when the thing you have your coveted objects start to be uh not taken away but at least shared with other people so i thought that was an interesting like it cut i think to the heart of maybe how cynically adam and rebecca in turn were using this kind of um origin story for the yeah company. totally it, it feels a little animal farm a little you know all animals are equal but some are more equal than others right exactly because if the ethos was like I mean, look, I don't know that a kibbutz ethos would, you know, allow for any sort of cash grab IPO at all. But like, <laughs> I, I, I think that, you know, I think everybody would the, probably be too stoned for that to happen. Although Adam made it that far. So I guess I shouldn't. 
Right. Well, especially because if he says we're not going to IPO, we're not going to go public, all of the people that he's been throwing, all the employees he's been throwing the, the shares and all this, you know, you're going to get rich off this at that wouldn't happen then. Yeah, you know, and it's completely I guess meaningless. All the, yeah, all the promises that he's made are just complete like dust. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's chilling. And I guess then, you know, puts that moment at the end when they're having this kind of sad party for, I guess, the, how many millions of square footage they own in New York or whatever. Um, and then he gets that that call. We don't, He doesn't yet know what the next step is, but he realizes that he's hit a major wall that means that his only recourse is to stay with the people who've already invested in him, who are now really breathing down his neck. And in that moment, now that we've talked about it, I don't really feel any empathy, even if the show was maybe trying to court it. I don't know that it was. I, I, I it's kind I, yeah, of satisfying, I, actually. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that he and Rebecca are certainly interesting characters. I don't think that they're sympathetic characters, and I don't think that the show wants them to be or is trying to make them. Like, I, I think it's smart, especially the way this episode especially uh, has a motif of them making these ridiculous, extravagant messes and then faceless people having to come in and clean them up. Like that just keeps happening over and over. And that is going to be the ultimate end of the company when they, you know, get their golden parachute and then they don't have to deal with the wreckage. Yeah. Yeah. Which maybe, you know, is, I guess, in an interesting way, because Travis Kalanick, I think, is still on the board of Uber or he's somehow involved in some capacity. And I think he obviously he made a lot of money from the company. Um, Elizabeth Holmes is really the one who lost it all, so to speak. Yeah. Um, I mean, she's the but, only one who's going to actually go to prison. Well, in theory, yes. In theory. I mean, <laughs> we'll find yeah, out in she, September. We will, which like, I don't understand why that's, I, I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of good reason why the sentencing takes so long, but um, I shouldn't, you know, demand a hastiness with that just so I can have my plot satisfied. I can but. see you with your pitchfork. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um but yeah i, I guess uh, now that we're we're two episodes away from the end of we crashed um does it make you any less curious about how the show continues to unfold knowing that adam and rebecca kind of just take their billion plus dollars and float away to florida or wherever they went i mean maybe slightly but there are there are other characters that you kind of want to you want to know what's going to happen to miguel i think that uh Cameron, the the new uh, benchmark capital guy who's brought in to kind of try to right the ship. Um, I think that he's an interesting character played by O.T. Bagley from uh, Handmaid's Tale and also who's playing uh, Barack Obama in the new First Lady show. Um, he's oh. got he's got range. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't know. So. It's there is there is more to it than just watching Adam get kicked out, I think. Yeah. And bringing the Cameron character in in this episode was so fun because you had to bring this outside observer in to be like, wait, you spent how much on what? Cause we haven't heard those details on, on the show yet really, but about the like, you know, Laird Hamilton stuff and, you know, the, the Adam leasing back his own property to the company. And, and all, I think it was a really good um, sneaky way to get exposition in there without it just yeah. being an info dump. And he's also, he's also a valuable uh, audience surrogate. I think even, you yeah. know, not, none of us are rich. I mean, maybe some of us are rich uh, venture capitalists, but like it's a, a kind of a dose of cold water onto this like fantasy that's been created through the rest of the show is is nice to see at this point in its run. Well, if any of you are rich venture capitalists and want to correct <laughs> the record on what we said about you, you can always email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. Uh, I think that does it for this episode. Uh, Hillary, thank you again for joining us and for, uh, you know, watching all of these horrible people do these horrible things. <laughs> uh, you know, when, I would when, be I would be doing it on my own time. So really, oh, no trouble at great. all. Well, better to do it on a Tuesday afternoon then. Um, 
in the meantime, Hillary, where can people find you online? Um, I'm on Twitter at Hillabuster. Great. And I am at Rylaws, writing on BF.com. As ever, this episode was edited and produced by Dave Gonzalez. And we'll see you next week. Until then, happy investing. Cha-ching! You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.